You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. John 18, verses 15 through 17. One of the one of the hardest things I've had to do, kind of as a leader, as a pastor, for the last 10, 11 years, is I've had to tell highly motivated young men especially. Young men seem to have the most zeal and energy of anybody. And who've come in with me to me with great ideas, passion to do something. And I've had to tell them to hey, that's a great idea, but let's, let's dial it down a little bit. And it was no, it's not because I think I'm better or I don't want them to do it, but it just needs to be toned down a little bit and kind of brought into reality. And most of the time, what happens is there's kind of this gloom look that comes over their face when you tell them to dial it down, as though you just told them that what they said is the dumbest thing they've ever heard and they shouldn't be doing it. And I know this because I've also been the one on the receiving end of that. I'm a very zealous, energetic person. But what happens is they go away feeling full of sorrow, worthless. And then what follows is really kind of this season, whether it be short or long, of reclusiveness. They went to be out front. They're the lead guy. They're making the charge. And all of a sudden, they get corrected or rebuked or something. And then all of a sudden, they're like a hermit, and you can't even find them. Then it's my job as a pastor to pull them out of that reclusiveness and say, Look, I'm not telling you not to go after this. I'm also not telling you to hide from it. I'm telling you to properly engage it. Peter is not afraid to fight. We learned about that this last week. Not even afraid to die for Jesus. He struck the high priest's servant in the garden when he was heavily outnumbered. He struck him, not intending to hit his ear as though he was an excellent marksman with the sword. He's like, I'm just going to get his ear. I'm pretty sure he was trying to kill the guy and completely missed. And so Peter was not afraid to die. Wasn't afraid to be associated with Jesus. And so when he struck that ear, he was starting a fight, knowing that he might even die in that moment. The fire that is in Peter's bones didn't just go away. It was still there. And it won't go away. Peter was a very strong-willed man, zealously fighting for what he believes is right. And when men like him are rebuked, especially by the Lord... They tend to hyper-react. And in this case, a hyper-reaction of Peter is not to turn up the dial and become even more of an activist, more revolutionary, more of a fighter. It tends to be a suppressing of the emotions, suppressing of that zealous desire, and assuming what Jesus is really wanting for Peter is to just close his mouth and do nothing at all. And as a man who is zealous and full of fight... If I made a bold move and stand for what I believed in and was rebuked by the very person or the thing that I was standing for, I would, because I know myself really well, instantly shut down. I remember at some point in ministry, I can't remember the situation. I just remember the advice. Pastor Nathan, one of the founding pastors of our church, had told me because I, I had felt some sort of rebuke or correction and I just pulled away and he told me, He came to me and he said, look, don't shut down, but draw near. We still want you. You're still needed. Your voice is still uh, needed at the table. I cannot possibly understand the adrenaline rush that Peter was going through. The adrenaline flowing through his veins after he was already in fight mode. Literally swinging a sword, ready to go. But then could you imagine, could you imagine what Peter felt when he was rebuked by Jesus? Literally, as Jesus is fixing the dude's ear. (laughs) Could you imagine? Almost embarrassing. The problem with such a reaction is that it becomes kind of this equal but opposite reaction. To do too much 
is as much of a problem as doing too little. I'm always accused of doing too much. For Peter, he will steadily decline into shame. And as he quickly goes from being this close-knit friend of Jesus, just trying to enact justice because it seemed like there was injustice taking place, to being a rebuked revolutionary who has to watch his friend clean up his mess. Recall the root of Peter's problem here. If we were to jump back to John chapter 13, in verses 36 to 38, John, or Simon Peter said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? (laughs) Truly, truly, amen, amen. Listen up, Peter. I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. You can't do what I'm about to do, Peter. You think you got it in you to do this. You don't have it in you to do this. Peter is confident he can follow Jesus where Jesus is going. Jesus reassures Peter that he cannot follow him until the work of the cross is done. There's a better way to follow Jesus. The way to follow Jesus as a disciple, as a disciple meaning in service to Jesus the King, is not the way of fanaticism or cowardice. Those are the two ditches. Fanaticism or cowardice. But the way of nobility. Nobility says, I will do something, but it will be guided by the plan of God, and it will stand firmly on the word of God, and I will do it not for the sake of myself, but for the sake of others, and I will call others with me. Fanaticism says... I will force the plan of God, even if it means I have to start a revolution. Cowardice says, I will do nothing because it's impossible or a pointless endeavor. What difference does it make if I vote anyway? That's the excuse we hear, right? Nobility is the better way, the biblical way. But the noble way of following Jesus is bound up in God's plan and God's word. And therefore, it must be empowered by the work of the cross. And so, I want us to see today, the noble way of following Jesus requires the cross. The noble way of following Jesus requires the cross. And so I want to show you two different ways of following Jesus in today's passage. There's two different ways. One is following Jesus apart from the work of the cross. And secondly, why we need the cross to follow Jesus. And one way is fueled by either fanaticism or cowardice. The other by nobility. So one, following Jesus apart from the work of the cross. And two, why we need the cross to follow Jesus. So let me give a little bit of background and context of what's going on. We learned last week that after Peter had struck down or <laughs> struck the, the high priest servant Malchus, they arrested Jesus. They took him in to start having this pre-trial. Okay? And so thus begins the Good Friday issue and the arrest of Jesus and then the trial of Jesus. But let me give a little bit of historical context I'm not well studied in the art and science of Old Testament law and the judicial system regarding the time. Because in that, in that time, it didn't just depend upon the Mosaic law, which is in the Old Testament, but it also depended upon the Talmud. The Talmud consists of two pieces. The Mishnah, which was a general Jewish law, and then the Gemara, which was a, essentially a commentary of that law. So you had the Bible, and then you had extra Bible, if you will, regarding the law and practices and the nuances of how trials and charges and arrests, all those things are to take place. So I had to lean heavily upon James Montgomery Boyce and what he had to say 
So, here we go. So in capital cases, which is where they're trying to go with Jesus here, the Sanhedrin would ultimately be involved. It's the highest level, highest charge, right? But here, in this story, we're not going to be in front of the Sanhedrin. That's kind of like the step below before you get up to the Sanhedrin. For Jesus, there is this attempt to create a capital case. There's an attempt to really get a hold of him, to have a case for something. Ultimately, it'll become blasphemy. But now, they're just scraping around trying to figure out something. The goal for them is to put Jesus to death. Today's trial is more of a preliminary trial. There are some problems, though, already. From the arrest, to the examination, to the charge, to the trial... All of it, according to the studies here, we're illegal. We're not right. And here's what makes today's scene and the rest of kind of that Good Friday story illegal in terms of the Jewish law. First was, the arrest was by night. And not only by night, but one day prior to the Sabbath. That was also an issue. You couldn't arrest on the Sabbath or a day prior. And you could not arrest at night. You cannot have a good trial in the middle of the night. Secondly, the arrest was achieved through the agency of a traitor and informer, Judas Iscariot. Leviticus 19.16 says this, Do not go about spreading slander among your people, Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. What this meant is that the witness had to be of good character and moreover could not bear witness against a close companion, friend, or relative. Already, Judas qualifies for all of those, which means this is not right. Third, the arrest was without the necessary basis of a specific and formal accusation of wrongdoing later to be presented in the court. As we've read and we'll read again, there is no specific charge. They are poking around trying to find some charge against Jesus. So they've already approached this pretrial wrongly, illegally, trying to find something to accuse Jesus. The fourth thing we see in regards to trial are witnesses. And that is going to be the big piece even for today's passage. Witnesses are crucial. Witnesses are the most important when it comes to a trial in a case. Witnesses act as prosecutors. They're not witnesses like we would have witnesses today where you could have multiple witnesses who are kind of telling bits and pieces of the same story. But it really, the case doesn't fall on their shoulders very much. The prosecutors or defendants, whatever, they are the ones who are working to provide the evidence. But in this time, it was in the hands of the witnesses. The testimony of the witness couldn't be partial. It had to be complete. From beginning to end of the story. No bits, no pieces. And all the witnesses, their testimony had to match. If it didn't match, they would throw it out. It was rigorous. And so the people who would be put on trial were not the defendant. We're not the ones who were being charged, but the witnesses. It was them that would be really interrogated, examined, and cross-examined. When it comes to witnesses, you have to have two or more witnesses needed for conviction. That's based out of Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17, and Deuteronomy 19. In this case, you have Judas Iscariot. And that's it. And last, these witnesses must stand as the accusers. The ones who are coming in, making the accusation. You don't get to make the accusation and then hide out. You have to actually stand and make the case. So here's the story. Here's the, here's the kind of the breakdown of what's going on. And so Peter, in this story, as it begins in verse 15 here, And another disciple that is nameless here, and many argue that it's John, the writer of this gospel, they follow Jesus. Jesus is arrested. 
This whole issue had happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so now Peter is following Jesus, but not so closely as he was a few minutes ago. Now he's at a distance. He follows him all the way to this preliminary hearing. And John, or the unnamed disciple, seems to have connection, knows the high priest, knows the servants, knows the people there. He's able to come in openly. Everyone knows that this unnamed disciple is a disciple and who's with him is also a disciple to listen to this initial hearing or at least be in the surrounding area. And what John does here in writing this section, he does something interesting. He weaves, he weaves this problem of Peter denying Jesus with Jesus having this preliminary hearing. And the structure kind of goes like this. You have Peter denying Jesus, Jesus in this preliminary hearing, and then Peter denying Jesus the second and third time. It's kind of this sandwich. It's all woven together. And so thus, we see a more clear reason Jesus told Peter in this passage You cannot drink the cup that the Father has given me. What he said in verse 11, just a few verses prior. Peter here in his denials will prove the point that he cannot follow Jesus apart from the cross. So the first thing, following Jesus apart from the work of the cross. Peter shows us what that looks like. First, following Jesus apart from the work of the cross looks like this. It looks like following Jesus at a distance. Peter goes from fanatic to coward. From fanatic to coward. He's not denying that Jesus is a friend or that he loves him. He's still with him in that way. But his followship, the way that he follows Jesus, goes from one extreme to another. And interestingly... Peter is there with his unnamed disciple. And this disciple is closely following Jesus. There's no record of that disciple denying Jesus. He is closely known by him, but Peter keeps his distance. Listen in verse 15 through 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of The high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So there's familiarity. This unnamed disciple has connections, knows people, is well aware. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself, following at a distance. It needs to be understood here. There is no hostility in the questioning of, aren't you one of the disciples? It's a legit question. Hey, are you one of the disciples? And Peter instantly says, no, I'm not. Though he came in with another disciple who knows the people who are putting Jesus on trial, who's aware that he is a disciple himself, and yet Peter, though he's walking with this other disciple into this trial, still says, I'm not with him, but finds himself outside warming himself in the dark. The second way, following Jesus... um, looks like apart from the cross is that when you when you're following Jesus is relying upon the cover of night when you're following Jesus is relying upon the cover of night i'm not just pulling this out of thin air john's gospel is a unique story when you look at the book of the gospel of john as a whole it's beautifully written it's artistic in that you have light and darkness in here you have Nicodemus, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, approaching Jesus a couple times in the Gospel of John at night, inquiring, wanting to know more. He slowly warms to Jesus over over time. And eventually, after Jesus dies, Nicodemus will be found at the cross. 
But then you have other stories where John intentionally mentions in the daytime something happens, like in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, the most least likely person in all of the area to be associated and be seen associated with Jesus or Jesus being associated with her in the open. And John shows that Jesus is. Peter has been hanging with Jesus openly in the daytime. No qualms, no issues, no problems. But here in this scene in the night, in the middle of the night, John points out that Jesus is at it, or Peter is at a distance. And theologically speaking, what we begin to see here is that Nicodemus, a Jew, and Peter, a disciple, are both on the same level playing field in terms of following Jesus. At a distance, at night, undercover. So following Jesus, apart from the work of the cross, looks like it. following at a distance, following in the cover of night. And you know that you're following Jesus apart from the cross when the world can incriminate you of not following Jesus. Listen to me. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said, you are you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, no. In verse 25, after the trial with Jesus, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. The evidence of three witnesses. We're going to see in a moment. Don't stand against Jesus. But they sure stand against Peter. Three different people. Three different crowds. If you will. Of people. Are asking. Are sure. You're one of the disciples. The world has the ability. If you will. To point out that Peter is a disciple of Jesus. And yet. Peter is still denying it. The world incriminates. And fourth, following Jesus apart from the work of the cross looks like, or happens, you know it, when the word of Jesus convicts you of how you're actually following him. When the word of Jesus convicts you of how it is you're actually following him. Peter again denied it, verse 27, and at once a rooster crowed. The word of Jesus prior told in John chapter 13 to Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster will crow. The word of Jesus comes against and stands against Peter. The way that you're following me, you think you're doing the right thing. You're not doing it right. You're actually in denial. Jesus does not want Peter to think that he must do the work that only Jesus can do. Jesus only wants Peter to follow him by the way of Jesus' work on the cross. Peter's trying too hard to make this happen under his own power. The way that he's following Jesus, I mean, everything about him smacks Christian. He's following him. He's got the t-shirt on. He's got the swag. He's got everything about him. But yet he's following at a distance. He's under the cover of night. He's denying him. Even the word of Jesus is testifying against him. Peter needs to understand what being a true follower, a right follower, actually means. And it has nothing to do with Peter. Everything to do with Christ. We have, as a church, we have the work of the cross. But we tend to forget it. Granted, Peter here is on the front side of the cross. Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't resurrected. The Spirit hasn't fallen yet, right? We have the cross. We have the resurrection. We have the Holy Spirit. Yet, we're still in our flesh. We're still sinners. And we tend to forget it. We tend to do things like Peter does here. We mistake the way that we follow Jesus. And we think sometimes that we're following Him rightly, but really we're not doing any different than what Peter may be doing here. 
we could become overzealous, mess up things. And out of pity and shame, we begin to recluse and believe lies. If I get too close to Jesus, I'll I'll mess it up even more. Or, you know, once a failure, always a failure. Jesus is done with us or me. He doesn't want to associate with me anymore. We don't know that Peter was thinking those things. But what is it? What is it that happened that Peter was not afraid to put his life on the line, be there, defend Jesus, and then all of a sudden be in denial of him? Right. We don't know. But what we do know from human experience is that we tend to give in to shame and cowardice whenever we're rebuked. We think we're strong, but really we are weak. And that's the point. Jesus doesn't come saving strong people. He comes saving weak people. And that's when we become strong. And so the lies that come up, yeah, you may have messed up. You may have gone too strong, too hard, too fast, if you will. And you may have been rebuked for it. But that doesn't mean Jesus is denying you, that he's done with you, that you're garbage. You have to believe in the work of the cross. Not in these lies that come in your head. We must not forget the truth of the cross. That what it does is it closes the distance between us and Jesus. We were at a distance, but now it's not just the cross bridges, but the cross closes. Jesus, we learn from God's, er, from John's gospel that he abides in us and that we abide in him. We're tapped into the lifeline of Christ. Everything that is His is ours. He has no shame in associating Himself with us. The shame we feel when we fail or deny Jesus has been accomplished, dealt with on the cross of Jesus. Hebrews 2, go back and read it. And reread it several times. Jesus came associating Himself with us, becoming a man for us, or So that he could die for us. And he's not ashamed. Even in all of our sinfulness. As grave as they may be. Or as weak as we think they may be. All of it. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Not ashamed to take on the curse of our sin. On the cross. But we keep forgetting that. Peter standing here. Forgetting already. That Jesus is not ashamed of him. Stop trying to do this your way. Do it my way, he's saying. Jesus' death on the cross becomes our death to sin. You hear me? His death on the cross becomes our death to sin. When he went on the cross and became a curse for us, that means he took on all the blame, all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt, everything we're accused of, pornography, lust, theft, whatever it is, adultery, all of it became his. He became guilty of those things, though he had never sinned. And when he died, all of that died with him. And when he rose, it all stayed in the grave dead. And he rose to life and we rose to life with him. That's the joy of the resurrection. That resurrection to life is accomplished. That life that we give or get and receive comes when the spirit dwells in us. The spirit will come and rest upon us, will inhabit us. And God's dwelling means then that there is no relational or empowerment gap between you and Jesus. You may sin. You may mess up. Is that okay? No. But he will convict you. And he is not stepping, distancing himself from you. He continues to keep that gap closed. You abide in him. You have direct access to him. You have the empowering work of the Holy Spirit residing in you because of what He did, not you. And so following Jesus apart from the work of the cross brings nothing but death and shame and guilt. But we need to follow Jesus 
according to the way of the cross. And so why we need the cross to follow Jesus. Let me read verses 19 through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I say is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I always wonder from your perspective how small this cup looks in my hand. It's very small. Just trying to loosen you all up a little bit. All right. Why we need the cross to follow Jesus. The cross makes our fellowship, should I say, perfectly righteous, just like Jesus. The cross makes our fellowship perfectly righteous, just like Jesus. Jesus is here facing injustice at what will be the highest level. Everything about this trial is illegal so far. It can't be fully backed up by the Old Testament Scripture and law. There's no clear charge. That's why Annas comes in saying, Hey, uh, so uh, tell me about your disciples and you know the doctrine that you're teaching. What he's trying to do is trying to extract some sort of charge that he can bring to Jesus. Jesus isn't ducking the question or dodging the question as though, he has, he's guilty of something and doesn't want to answer or is pleading the fifth in that case. But rather, he knows what's going on. He understands the game that's being played. And so what Jesus does is instead of trying to answer the question of the disciples or doctrine, he appeals to proper trial. Now, let me give you an idea of what could possibly be... at what Annas is trying to extract from Jesus. In asking about the disciples, he could be asking and trying to figure out if he's trying to invoke a riot or an uprising. I mean, this is Passover time. Everybody from all over the surrounding world, all the Jews have come in. So is there some sort of insurrection or something that is going to take place? In terms of doctrine, they don't have any charge at this point. Eventually they will. That he claims to be the Son of God. But that's what he's looking for. Looking for some sort of theology that they can pin against Jesus. Jesus doesn't let them have the time of day. Instead, he appeals to the system. (laughs) The broken system. Just so you all know, the system's been broken since sin entered the world. But he appeals to the system. Saying, look, I've spoken openly. There's nothing that I've said to the disciples in secret that I have not also said out out loud in front of everybody. Granted, Jesus may have spoken more specifically and detailed in private with the disciples about the things he shared publicly, but that doesn't mean it's contradictory. That doesn't mean he's teaching something else. He openly spoke. And he didn't just openly speak. He openly spoke in synagogues, like Jewish churches. And he openly spoke in the temple, like the Jewish megachurch. He didn't hide anything. He openly spoke, which means there should be some open witnesses that can come forward and make some sort of accusation. Jesus is saying, where are they? Where's the witnesses? He wasn't trying to be smart. He wasn't being disrespectful. And then he was wrongly struck, accused of dishonoring Annas. Jesus knows he did not sin. Jesus didn't sin. He appealed to what was in the law. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have this in my notes. The Apostle Paul made a mistake in dishonoring a priest. And then when he realized who he was back talking to, he came back off of that and apologized for disobeying an Old Testament law. I believe that's an act somewhere. Jesus doesn't have this situation here. This striking may have been the Hail Mary 
for the Jewish officials to finally send him on to Caiaphas and to send him on to the higher courts, basically incriminating Jesus that he had somehow crossed the line and disrespected this priest. But in the midst of it all, in the midst of all this injustice, in the midst of the fact that Jesus could have rebuked them using Scripture left and right, he could have defended himself openly and perfectly, put them all to shame. He doesn't. He stands perfect in conduct, and he stands perfect, obviously, in his life. Because when we read this, nobody, literally nobody in this pretrial is able to come forward with any charge. I'm sure if they put Peter on trial, they'd already have several people outside by the fire who's like, yeah, I got some charges against this guy. But for Jesus, nothing. And so we need Jesus to get to the cross in order to attain perfect righteousness. Second, the cross takes our shame and guilt and puts it to death, just like Jesus was put to death. The cross takes our shame and guilt and puts it to death just like Jesus. The final scene of Peter's denial, the final two, second and third denial in verses, or verse 26 and 27, reveals something unique to us. Not that just Peter's a mess up. It's always easy to jump on that bandwagon of, here's how Peter messes up and how we shouldn't be like him. But it reveals something else. Jesus was not looking to cash in on a, hey, I told you so, Peter. He wasn't looking to embarrass him or have Peter just wallow in guilt and shame forever. Rather, the rooster crowing brought serious conviction. If you were to read this same story in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They all talk about once that rooster crows, Peter weeps. Two of them say, wept bitterly. Peter even got a little hostile towards the end of the questioning. Like, stop questioning me, woman. I'm not not associated with this guy. And then the rooster crows, which I don't understand a rooster crowing in the middle of the night. But that would be annoying. But anyways, the rooster crowed. Peter knows what's up. He remembers he's convicted by the word of Christ and then he weeps. And how do I know that Jesus just wasn't just wanting to put Peter to shame and leave him in guilt? Jesus told Peter in John 13 that you can't follow me now, but afterward, after you will. Jesus is already, it's kind of that already, but not yet. You're going to follow me. You can't go drink the cup that I'm about to drink. You're going to mess it all up. And just to show you that I'm right, the rooster will crow. But Jesus has an optimistic outlook for Peter here. And secondly, and I didn't read this passage, but in Luke chapter 22, Jesus actually prays for Peter. Satan is going to mess with Peter in all sorts of kinds of ways. But Jesus prays for him. Prays for him. The Apostle Paul tells us later on, when we get into the book of Romans, that while we were still yet sinning, Christ died for us. Literally, Christ died for us while we were in the act of sinning. He died. Here is Peter, literally in the act of sinning, and Jesus is literally in the act of dying. But he does not deny. He doesn't deny us his brothers for whom he's going to die. Jesus may have left that trial frustrated that his accusers are wrongly arresting and charging him. He may have been frustrated Peter had denied him. I'm sure Jesus knew very well. But Jesus never lost sight that he was coming to die for sinners and not righteous men. From Annas to Peter, all are in need 
of the work of Jesus on the cross. The work of Jesus makes us righteous. That is so that we can stand before God. But it also makes us righteous so that we can stand before men. After he resurrects, he will pour out his spirit upon his people. And that will empower them to rightly follow Jesus. This is why we need the cross to rightly follow Jesus. His spirit pours out upon us the never ending grace and never ending forgiveness of Jesus. So that when we do follow him, we can be reminded just like Peter, that Jesus wants us to follow him. And two, that he has prayed for us. John 17. Jesus wants us to follow him and he has prayed for us continually. I would say praying, interceding. Jesus is not wanting any more than for us to be noble followers of him. But when we do mess up, grace and forgiveness and prayer awaits. There's freedom. The resurrection will take our fanaticism and our cowardice and not throw them out like garbage, but rather redeem them. Restore them. Make them new. Turn them into something noble. Brokenness is exactly what Peter needed. It is broken men that Jesus comes to die for. Not the strong. Being strong apart from Jesus does a couple things. One, it, it, It's the swelling of pride that makes you believe that you're actually strong enough. And second, it is pride that acts as a ploy that makes others think you are strong so they cannot actually see that you're insecure. When we are strong in our own ways, we believe we're strong enough or we're just pretending we're strong enough so that others don't think or know that we're actually insecure. One form, one produces fanaticism, another cowardice. Brokenness understands that strength apart from Jesus is foolish and useless. Brokenness forces the man to stop looking at himself and to look only to the cross of Christ. Peter, who has been so close to Jesus and even unashamedly has now come to grips that he's been doing nothing more than the Jews who would oppose Jesus. Operating in the dark. Jesus comes, the light of the world, to expose the darkness so that men like Peter and you and me might truly live. And so the next time we see Peter in the, in the Scripture, he'll be a new man. He will no longer be a man of fanaticism, nor a man who shrinks back in cowardice. And when I'm talking about Peter being a new man, I'm talking after the fall of the Holy Spirit. He will be a man changed by the noble work of Jesus. Jesus didn't give in to fanaticism and he wasn't a coward. Peter will become a noble follower of Jesus. John 21, 19 tells, tells, us that, uh, tells Peter the very words he desired to hear Jesus say back in chapter 13. After the resurrection of Jesus, he shows himself to the disciples and he looks at Peter in John 21, 19 and he says, Follow me. The way the cross has been accomplished. Follow me. You and I, church, are new in Christ. You and I will experience things like injustice, false accusations, the spreading of harmful laws in our land, the increasing secular ideology invading every part of your world. Do not be like Peter prior to the cross and resort to fanaticism or cowardice, but rather to the way of Christ, the noble way of Christ. Be aware of those who call for revolutions and be aware of those who think we should just remain silent and do nothing. Some of you just need to hear me say these words or this word, and it is this, go and do something. That's it. Go and do something. Go fight abortion. Go fight LGBTQ plus ideology. Go fight CRT ideology. 
Go fight to take the gospel to unreached people groups. Go fight to bring Christ to the center of your marriage, to the center of your parenting. Go fight to bring Christ on your campus, wherever you are. Whatever you're doing, whatever the Lord has placed as a burning desire on your heart, go and do it. That's what it means to be noble. To just go do something. But do it not by the sword, nor by warming yourself with the world, but in the noble way of Christ. We need sages to rise up. Not that sage, but sages... To rise up for the sake of Christ and the sake of others. Because that's what it means to be noble. That you're acting not on your own interest, but on the interest of others for the sake of Christ. Do something. Follow Jesus. Don't wait for me to tell you to follow Jesus. Jesus has already done the work and he's reaching out through his word saying, follow me. So follow him. The Lord has called you to do what he has put in your heart to do. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. So go do it. There's a reason you work with the people you do. There's a reason you have the neighbors that you have. There's a reason you have the husband you have or the wife that you have or the kids that you have. To continue to follow Jesus and bringing Christ to them. For them. A noble man makes a noble plan. And a noble man takes a noble stand. When you're following Jesus, does not pursue the noble plan of God. Like in this case, Peter was not following the plan and the will of God. He was following the plan and the will of himself. Nor does it stand on the noble word of God. So if you're following Jesus, doesn't stand on the noble plan of God and the noble word of God, it is no longer noble. When your fellowship causes you to sin against others or your church family to become a fanatic or to become a coward and hide and recluse, you are no longer a noble follower, but a follower operating at a distance under the cover of night. Living in nothing but conviction and your own shame and guilt. And that's not what Christ has died for. That's not what Christ has called you to. You have Christ in you. The hope of glory. Nobility was passed from Christ to us. We now can operate in fellowship with and service to the King with nobility. And how? And the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the transferring agent of these acts. Connecting us to the life and the character of King Jesus is like an, an IV in the arm. After the Spirit fell in Acts 2, Peter was able to rightly follow Jesus in a way he could not do prior to the cross, prior to the fall of the Spirit. Peter became a disciple of nobility. Just like his Jesus. And Jesus didn't tell him to give up his zeal. He didn't tell him to give up his personality. How God had made him. Rather, he redeemed who Peter was. Rightly focused that energy. Rightly focused that desire. That passion. That zeal for the kingdom. Into the way of nobility. Listen to what Paul says. Or excuse me, Peter says. In 2 Peter 1, 12-15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. These are the last days of Peter's life. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. It's the noble act of calling others. Since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, He told Peter at the end of John, you're going to die. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter understood that the ongoing work of the kingdom, the advancement of the gospel and moving forward was not entirely up to him. 
He didn't have to try so hard to realize all these things. He also didn't need to just sit back and do nothing. God called him to action and to life, and he does. But this is where it becomes noble, is when he calls others to the same thing. And so we see Peter here, unashamed of Christ, unashamed of his work now, filled with the Spirit, doing everything he can all the way to his last dying breath to remind the church of these qualities, knowing that after he's dead and gone, the kingdom will continue on. Peter harkens back to what Jesus promised in John 13, that he would die. So, well then, what is the task of the disciple who follows Jesus? What is the noble pathway of making disciples? It's simply this. Not trying to fanatically realize the kingdom on earth, nor sitting cowardly in fear of what could happen if you actually did something. The noble move is to pivot from fanaticism, pivot from cowardice to the cross, and simply go and bear witness of Jesus to all the world. Tell the world that Jesus has what he has commanded and do so full of integrity, full of the character of Christ, just like Jesus told of his kingdom all the way to his death. And do it not for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of serving others. You have already tasted the goodness and the grandness of the gospel of Jesus. Now go and bear witness to the world, desiring for them to know the same As you go, stand and be amazed at what God does. You will fail. You will mess up. You will most likely do too much. But when you do, pivot to the noble work of Christ. Set your heart and mind on the work that He has clearly called you to do and just go and do. I know I sound like I'm repeating myself. It's because I am. So that it'll sink in. Jesus will not deny you. He will not distance himself from you. He will not become a fanatical tyrant lording over you burdens that you cannot bear. He will not become a coward when you face adversity, tucked away, avoiding its difficulty. Jesus takes your burdens and he supplies you with his spirit. He is always there right beside you, dwelling among you, never afraid of what may cause you fear. So come. Come all. To the noble way of following Jesus. Follow Jesus apart from his work on the cross. And your days will be full of ruin. Shame. Fanaticism. Cowardice. Follow Jesus according to his work on the cross. And you'll discover a noble life in service to the king. That is full of power, grace, forgiveness, and complete freedom. Come you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.